before I start, let's, let's pray again. Father, we thank you for the awesome privilege it is to open your word and that we can, uh, we can find light and life and your love in it, your command, your encouragement, your correction. Father, may your Holy Spirit come and teach here today. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be in James chapter 2. I suspect, I plan that we'll make it through all of James chapter 2 today. Uh, Spent a couple of weeks uh, getting through James chapter 1. My prayer is always that everyone is edified about what goes on here, the preaching and teaching. This book in particular ought to always give us, James ought to give us some real practical, down-to-earth, just rubber-meets-the-road kind of instruction. And so it ought to be pretty easy for us to find a way to take what God's going to show us here today and go apply it, make it part of how we walk in our Christian life. I'm going to read through James chapter 2. I'm going to read from the screen, Kara. By the way, uh, if you all hadn't noticed, I'm very glad that Fraser and Kara have uh, shown willingness to help upstairs. They've been training for a few weeks you know, on Wednesday nights and uh, hopefully going to give Tom some relief up there. Uh, we don't really pay much attention to how much Tom just stays up there and stays up there and stays up there <laughs> all these all these years, and uh, it's it's uh, it it takes you away from engagement many times what you have to do up there. So I appreciate Fraser and uh, Kira coming alongside and and giving him some relief. They're working together right now, but soon Tom can be down here and they can be up there, and I'm I'm very happy for thankful for that. So. Uh, could you switch to NIV, please, James chapter 2? Uh, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. 
For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's go on to 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. I'll tell you that last verse 26 really struck me as I was preparing this time. It really struck me. Having witnessed people die and having seen bodies at funerals, it, there's such a, a graphic picture that that painted for me. We'll be get back to that. Back to verse 1. I'm going to be reading from the NAT now. And uh, you can put NIV up there, though, Kareth. My brothers and sisters, do not show prejudice if you possess faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, for if someone comes into your assembly wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor person enters in filthy clothes, do you pay attention to the one who is finely dressed and say, you sit here in a good place, and and to the poor person you stand over there or sit on the floor? This assembly, it really can be interpreted a couple of different ways, but actually... It, it makes more sense with the whole context here that it's not talking about necessarily a worship assembly. This wasn't like church. This assembly, it's the word 
uh, where we get synagogue. You know, he's writing to these former uh, Jewish people from who became Christians, who believed on Christ, and then were scattered, right? That's how James starts. He addresses them. And so these people are assembling and doing a, a lot of the same things they were doing, but this is on sort of the legal side of the church. This is assembly to deal with issues between people in the church. That's one way of interpreting this, and it makes sense when you look at uh, the next uh, couple of verses. Verse 4, if so, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? So it sounds to me that this really does make sense to say, well, this is not really a worship service. This is an assembly to decide some issue. And so, and then he talks about the rich dragging you into court. And why would you give them preference if they're abusing you in general and then they walk in dressed well and you give them deference? The same goes with any assembly. It doesn't matter what the purpose is. As Christians, we should never judge by outward appearance. No, no man by the flesh. But we do. Every one of us does. Maybe far less some than others. But we have to admit it's part of our nature. For one thing, it might not even have to do with how they're dressed. It has to do with their looks. Their attractiveness. Their their personality. But what really ought to only matter is, are they a brother or sister? Or not. We aren't to judge even non-Christians severely because, you know, by how they dress. How could we ever approach the poor to get them saved? You know, to bring them to Christ if we discarded them because of their state. In our society, the idea of dressing for success is real. There's a book. Dress for success. Been around a long time. You can get online, dress for success, and, and Google, and there's all kinds of videos and instruction about this is how you present yourself in this kind of environment, that kind of environment, because people judge us by outward appearance. And that's part of the world. We are in the world. We're not to be of it, but we're in it, and we are affected by that practice. Period. We are. We are. But this says you ought not to be. We ought not to be. The only way we get get past that and lay that aside more and more is that we have the eyes of God to look on other people. Just like opening our mouth that grace may be ministered, let us open our eyes and see as God sees his children. So that we don't Distinguish by outward appearance and give one preference over another in any circumstance just because of that. What we ought to pray for all the time, daily, is discernment. Discernment is so vital and it always has been, but I just feel like it, it becomes more and more vital every day. When you turn on the news, discernment. Maybe to turn it off. <laughs> but to be uninformed is, is not profitable. 
To be ill-informed is dangerous. Okay? So can we watch the news with discernment? Yes. Can you watch a commercial with discernment? Yes. You should. You should watch everything. You should read and hear everything using discernment that God has given his people. He does not want us or desire us to be ignorant of the devil's schemes, including how they're trying to get you to go buy that particular kind of soap. For no good reason, except to make somebody money, those rich who drag you into court. Okay? This, ain't, this is all pervasive in our society. Discernment on the individual level in our society, all, all through what we do, is, is absolutely needful in the body of Christ. We had an occurrence one time, this young man comes in, and i got to tell a story about Angela. The guy comes in and, and he has, I don't have that discernment for this kind of person, but Angela's been around these kind of people for a very long time. I mean, she has history. <laughs> if you want to know her history, get with her sometime. And she had discernment about this young man who left in the middle of the service, and she followed him out the door and went and confronted him because she had discernment about his purpose. I had no discernment about that. She followed her discernment and followed what she believed God would have her do about it. That following what God would have you do about it is really, really important. Having discernment and not following through with it or letting it affect how you do something, it means the discernment is useless. Why have it? If we discern something, it's for a reason. It may be something fairly mundane or it may be something life-changing or life-threatening. Discernment. Look past the clothes. Look past the, the attractiveness. Look past the ugliness. Look past whatever it is that our human, our natural selves tends toward judging by. Look past that and say, God, let me see as you see. Verse 5, he says, Did God... Did not God choose the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he promised to those who love him? Did Jesus himself go to the rich folks while he was on earth? That's a pretty good place to start. I don't know any stories like that. Well, I say maybe not rich. When he went to the tax collector's house, that guy might have been rich, but he... If they had had movie stars then, would he have gone to the movie stars' houses? No. I don't believe he would have. Except that their heart would be right and that would be a place where he could do what he needed to get done. But it would have nothing to do with their place in society or in wealth. (laughs) I get so tired of hearing... uh, famous people, and normally because they're famous, they're rich. Act like we care what they think about anything. Because I don't. There's a, I, re, I like to read Reader's Digest. I've been old all my life, okay? I like to read Reader's Digest. And there's usually a section called quotable quotes. 
I used to read them until I started thinking about, you know, looking at who these people were they were quoting. And most of them, I don't really care what they said. They are not basing what they're saying on anything that I find foundational. It's mostly actors, maybe some novelists, you know, authors. But really, why are they quotable? Well, because they speak up and they have a big megaphone. That doesn't mean we have to listen. But it does mean we need discernment. Verse 6, But you have this honor the poor. Are not the rich oppressing you and dragging you into court? <laughs> you, you ever really hear much about poor people suing somebody? As much as you hear about rich people suing somebody. Why is that? Because you have to have a lawyer, and lawyers are expensive, and the poor people can't afford them, and the rich people think, this is what you do. i got plenty of money, I'll hire the best lawyers, and you can't beat me because you don't have enough money to. Not because I'm right, but because I'm rich. Wow, what a society, what a place to live. America. <laughs> America's a great place. But man, we have some ills. We have some sickness. It's being more and more displayed here of late from our government. Craziness. Illness being unveiled. On purpose. It's like, look at what we do because we are so enlightened and so progressive. Wow. Discernment is vital. Verse 7, do they not blaspheme the good name of the one you belong to? Again, why do we listen to actors and actresses who have no problem blaspheming the name of our Lord and Savior? But if you fulfill the royal law as expressed in this scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. Here we go again, back to that loving your neighbor stuff. It shows up over and over and over and over and over. There must be something to it. Oh, it's one of the two things that Jesus said, do these two things, and that fulfills the law and the prophets. Love your neighbor as yourself and love God with all you've got. (laughs) It's like, these people, maybe they can remember these two things. (laughs) Maybe. Just concentrate on these two. Oh, but then when you start doing that, you realize, It affects everything. It changes everything about attitude and how I live my life, how I walk. Love your neighbor. And loving your God is probably not near as hard for most of us than as loving your neighbor as yourself. Because, man, we got some rough neighbors. It doesn't say just the good ones. Love your neighbor. In 9, but if you show prejudice, you are committing sin. That's pretty straightforward and are convicted by the law as violators. He goes through this comparison to the law about do not murder, do not commit adultery. But verse 12, here we go. Speak and act. Speak and act as those who will be judged by a law that gives freedom. That's an interesting statement. The law that gives freedom, the the law of the Spirit gives us freedom and we should speak and act 
as those who come under that law. For judgment is merciless for the one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. I'm going to look at my notes for a minute now because I've been going on and on without paying attention. Make sure I'm not getting way too far ahead of myself. Okay, let me back up for just a minute. I wrote this down because I, I had this picture. I just like things to, to look at in my head, and I think some of you benefit from that too. That's why I always share them when I can. All right, just imagine. You know, uh, over in England, especially in, in uh, times past, like in the uh, uh, Victorian age and whatever, when some special person come, would come into an assembly, like into a, uh, a gathering or some. some Kind of, they had somebody at the door announcing them, who they who they are, not their name, but their rank, basically, who they are by rank, and the more titles and stuff, the better, right? Or if it's uh, His Royal Highness or Her Majesty, you know, I don't know all the rules, but just consider how the poorest among us. This is what I wrote. If a child of God, if you're a child of God, would be introduced in that kind of setting. I'm just going to kind of act this out a little bit. Introducing priest and king in the kingdom of God. Heir to God's riches. Blessed by God's hand. Saved by God's grace. A child of the Most High God. That's how we should think on those who enter in. And how we ought to realize that's who we are. All defined by those same terms when we're saved by grace having called on Christ that's how we would be introduced every man, woman and child who's called on Christ no matter what they look like what work they do, what clothes they wear that's the description they would be introduced by or one that could be You know, I like to quote Matthew Henry. He, he wrote about uh, concerning the poor, but who are rich in God. He says, what is laid out upon them is but little. What is laid up for them is unspeakably rich and great. Laid upon them is little. Laid up for them is rich. So over to this verse about mercy. Judgment is merciless for the one, in 13, for the one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is a big deal. Judgment's pretty rough for the merciless. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, what did he say about the merciful? Blessed are the merciful for they will 
see mercy. It's kind of a two-way thing. You give it, you get it. But merciless ones only get judgment. But that also caused me to think about what we, we use this term, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with it, unsanctified mercy. I really had to stop and think about that because it's real easy to assign that term, unsanctified mercy, in, in meaning mercy that you shouldn't offer because it's getting in the way of God. It's unsanctified, not ordained by Him. But we have to be really careful because that's an easy out when we're called to be merciful and we say, well, I think God's dealing with him and I'm just going to not show mercy because I would get in the way. Sometimes that's true. But the real essence of unsanctified mercy, the mercy that we're not to show, is mercy for the enemy, period, always. But we do because we don't recognize him or we don't address it. Anything that is coming to thwart God's will, to come against God's plan or against his people, and I'm talking about the works of Satan, anything in that realm we should have zero, absolutely zero mercy for. The force behind it. Now, many times that comes in people, and we've got to figure out a way with discernment How do we love that person and have no mercy for the thing driving them? That's tricky. But it's possible God will show us how if it need be, if we come to that point and and we're addressing that kind of individual. But there is such thing as unsanctified mercy. Don't show mercy for the enemy. Don't. It's not called for by God. He does not call us to do that. Okay, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can this kind of faith save him? Now we get into this place where so many people get frustrated with James, disagreeing with Paul. This isn't about being, having, being justified in God's view. It's showing our faith on earth Primarily, that's what this is about. And letting faith have its way and having an effect. That's what this is all about. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacks daily food, King James says, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat well, (laughs) give them a thumbs up as they go out the door hungry and ill-clothed. But you do not give them what the body needs. What good is it? Now, this is not talking about an act of faith, a work of faith. That's not what it's talking about. This is an example of how faith without works looks. Okay? It's not a thing about how it's a matter of faith to feed people. You know, just get that separate because I I need to keep, I like to keep things just like they're really written. And it says, this is what it looks like. How crazy is it to know you're standing next to somebody that is hungry and has no clothes and you have food and stuff to put on and you send them away saying, hope things go well for you. I'll pray for you. 
bless your heart. <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. Without doing something about the need that you have been shown. If you've been shown the need, maybe there's a reason why you were shown. And it may not be so severe as needing food and, and water and clothes. It may be something much simpler and something more easily addressed or something far harder. Lots of spectrum in that. 17, so also faith, if it does not have works, is dead being by itself. How does the kingdom of God expand if not by what we do at his command? He uses people that work out their faith, work out their salvation. That's another scripture that Paul wrote, by the way. All this does gel. It all does agree. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. But then James says, show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith by my works. Look at what I do if you want evidence of who I believe in. That's all it's about. If I, if I believe in Christ and walk in such a way as to worry and stress and, and make it look like I have no hope, what is my faith for? People won't believe I have any. The fact is, I don't. My faith is weak. Let my faith be so, so strong, so built up that when I, whatever I walk through, people see how I do it and say, there's a man of faith. There's a woman of faith. How do they do that? Oh, well, I know. They have faith and they have hope. They walk their talk. Nineteen. You believe that God is one? Well, good. <laughs> Even the demons believe that. And tremble with fear is what the NAT says, but the fact is, King James says, and tremble, and that word tremble doesn't mean with fear. It means with hatred. You know, when you're so mad, and you're just, you know, you're shaking, you're so mad, and you hate something so much, it's like, that's how the demons tremble. They hate God. They come against God. They know there is one God. And they hate him and tremble so much. They, they hate him so much they tremble. And sure, if they come around to it, they fear him. But it makes more sense to hate bringing on the shuddering. One, one translation says they shudder. <sighs> you ever do that? <sighs> yeah, I know you do. I know you do. You don't have to admit it. Just think about those demons. They believe God. It's not good enough just to believe in God. But you would, but would you like evidence, you empty fellow, that faith without works is useless? And he brings up Abraham. So we're going to go back and look at that story of Abraham. Most of you, if not all of you, know the story of Abraham offering Isaac, but we're going to go look at it because it always... Every time I do this, every time I look back and say, oh, yeah, I know that story, and I look back and say, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's a reason we do this. 
and go over the same stuff over and over to remind ourselves of what it really says when we've let it kind of get distorted and dimmed in our minds. So let's go to uh, where Genesis 22, is that where it is? So just to put you in kind of the timeline, you know, Abraham's been through all this stuff. He was called to, to move far away from where, he, where his family was. He was told he's going to be uh, the father of many nations, had no heirs. So he, he got in God's way and had Ishmael, and then God blessed him with Isaac. All right, so Abraham has been told, this is your heir, and through him you, we will, you know, all the nations will be blessed. And then God says, Sometime after these things, God tested Abraham. Remember, first part of James, consider it all joy when you have testing. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replied. God said to him, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. As I read this and the whole story, I want you to think about what he's telling Abraham to do and what the whole process is and consider how Similar it is to what God did with Jesus. Okay? Just consider it. Your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. Or Moriah. By the way, that is probably where the temple was built later on. Isn't that interesting? Because he's going to go make a sacrifice. Offer him up there as a burnt offering. Offer your son up as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will indicate to you. And I'm sure it's wherever he pointed is where the temple was established later. Anyway, it's not certain. It's a good, good idea, good possibility that it was. Now, it doesn't, doesn't give us any description of Abraham's reaction except that he did this. Can you imagine? Just imagine. Take your son and go offer him as a sacrifice. What kind of stuff would be going through your head and what would come out of my mouth back to God? Are you kidding? Wait, wait, wait. Let's go back to what you said about this. In the New Testament, Abraham worked some things out in his own thinking that if he sacrificed his son, God could raise him from the dead. That's what he had in his head. It doesn't say that here. It says it in the New Testament. Early in the morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took two of his young servants with him along with his son Isaac. When he had cut, up, cut the wood for the burnt offering, he started out for the place God had spoken to him about. On the third day, Abraham caught sight of the place in the distance. That's quite a, quite a ways off. You know, it's not, not like going in your backyard. No, this is like doing, doing, doing. There's a lot to do to be obedient to what God said. So he, so he said to his servants, you, stay, you two stay here with the donkey while the boy and I go there. We will worship and then return to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and put it on his son Isaac. That reminds me of Christ carrying his cross, taking up his cross. Then he took the fire and the knife in his hand. And the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father, what is it? My son, he replied, here is the fire and the wood. 
Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac understood offerings. They'd been doing that. Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham replied, the two of them continued on together. When they came to the place God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood on it. Next, he tied up his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife, and prepared to slaughter his son. But the Lord's angel called him from heaven. Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. Do not harm the boy, the angel said. Do not do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God because you did not withhold your son, your only son, from me. That's a very interesting turn of of, uh, pronouns. It says the Lord's angel called out, and then he starts talking like the Lord himself. I believe it was. You did not withhold your son, your only son, from me. Now, God is outside of time. He sees the beginning from the end. He knows all this stuff. He could have believed, he could have known when he told Abraham what to do that he would do it. Seems like to me. But he required Abraham's full obedience and a doing by faith until the very instant that it was absolutely certain in Abraham's heart and mind that he would do it. Do you think it was to convince God or to convince Abraham? Yes and yes. Abraham looked up and saw behind him a ram caught in the bushes by its horns. So he went over and got the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place the Lord provides, or Jehovah-Jireh. I love this definition of Jehovah-Jireh. God will see to it. I love that. I love that definition. He named the place, God will see to it. It is said to this day, in the mountain of the Lord, provision will be The Lord's angel called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, I solemnly swear by my own name, decrees the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you and I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be as countless as the stars in the sky or the grains of sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the strongholds of their enemies because you have obeyed me. And then it goes on what he did because of faith. That's the whole point from James. And then the other, the other example given in James is the story of Rahab. We'll go ahead and look at that. Joshua chapter 2. Get back here to it. Joshua, Judge of Ruth. Joshua chapter 2. 
Let's see. Let's just start in one. Joshua, son of Nun, sent two spies out from Shittim secretly and instructed them, find out what you can about the land, especially Jericho. They stopped at the house of a prostitute named Rahab and spent the night there. So these are spies going in and checking out, you know, doing a reconnaissance. The kind of Jericho, the king of Jericho received this note, this report. Note well, Israelite men have come here tonight to spy on the land. So the king of Jericho sent his order to Rahab, sent this order to Rahab, turn over the men who came to you, the ones who came to your house, for they have come to spy on the whole land. But the woman hid the two men and replied, yes, these men were clients of mine. But I didn't know where they came from. When it was time to shut the city gate for the night, the men left. I don't know where they were heading. Chase after them quickly, for you have time to catch them. Now she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax she had spread out on the roof. Meanwhile, the king's men tried to find them on the road to the Jordan River near the fords. The city gate was shut as soon as they set out in pursuit of them. Now, but... Before the spies went to sleep, Rahab went up to the roof. She said to the men, I know the Lord is handing this land over to you. We are absolutely terrified of you. And all of you, all who live in the land, are cringing before you. For we heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you left Egypt and how you annihilated the two Amorite kings, Sion and Og, on the other side of the Jordan. When we heard the news, we lost our courage and no one could even breathe for fear of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Do you think she had faith in God? Do you think she had seen his works, heard of his works, and had developed a faith in him and his power? She's telling them the whole story and telling them this is what I know and not just believe but I know. So now promise me this with an oath sworn in the Lord's name because I have shown allegiance to you, show allegiance to my family, give me a solemn pledge that you will spare the lives of my father, mother, brothers, sisters, and all who belong to them and rescue us from death. It's not not like, save me. No, I got a list. I got a list because I've helped you guys and I know who your God is and I know we're dying if I don't do something about this. I have faith in God, and I need to do, I, I am doing this work because of that faith. The men said to her, if you die, may we die too. If you, not, if you do not report what we've been up to, then when the Lord hands the land over to us, we will show unswer- unswerving allegiance to you. Then Rahab let them down by a rope through the window. Her house was built as part of the, out of the city wall. She lived in the wall. She told them, head to the hill, country so the ones chasing you don't find you. She knew where those guys had gone. She said, go that way. Hide from them there for three days, long enough for those chasing you to return. Then you can be on your way. James says that's an example of faith and works together. Abraham, faith in God and the work of actually obedient to the point of drawing the knife to slaughter his son.
I read this one way of saying it. Faith is the root. Good works are the fruits. There's no disconnection. It's all one thing that happens. Faith turns out, presents itself in works, the fruits of our labors. When we confess Christ with our mouths and believe on him in our hearts, we are saved. And at that instant, we should begin the works required by the gospel, by the law of liberty that brings freedom so as to work out our salvation. Martha, do you have something? I hope uh, I hope this was edifying that maybe even those mature among us were reminded or prompted by something today. I, I was. I am. Every time I teach, I'm always prompted along. While I was studying this week, I, I don't know why this matters. I might not even should say it. It just came to mind while I was studying. Uh, when I, the first year I taught, I uh, I was given calculus as one of the subjects I was going to teach, and I had not been in a calculus class in about twelve years. And uh, so every night for that whole year, I studied calculus. And every day for the whole year, I taught calculus. I knew calculus. I'd had three semesters in differential equations. I had quite a background. But I needed to study every night to be ready to present it and teach it. Even when we know the word, let us continue to study it make it more our own, have it implanted more deeply. That's what happens. When you open the Word and look into it, it changes you. That was a really fruitful year for me in math and calculus. I enjoyed every minute of it. I love study and learning. And having known the material is just a refreshing, and it's like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. So, yeah, that's it. And this is how I'll teach it. This is really an exciting year. Did I do it the next year? No. Should I have? Yes. Yes. Same thing with the Word. Stay in it. Study it. Let it change you. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that you, <laughs> you've been so gracious to give it to us so freely that all we have to do is look into it. Look into that law of liberty, the law that brings freedom. You allow us to do that, to be changed by it. May we be useful to you as we work out our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. So, continue to pray for the families that have lost loved ones this week, the Cox family, the uh, Burleson family, Littlefield's here still. Uh, Morrison's are connected, those of you who know them. 
uh, and pray for Isaiah. God would do a miracle in his body. And continue to pray, pray for Elion. I assume that's how they pronounce it. I'm not sure. Elion. Uh, that his heart is strengthened and matured as it's supposed to be by God's creation and that uh, the progress that they've already witnessed and praise God for continues and they get home sometime soon, very soon. And anything else?